God's grace. Grace is, uh, the, maybe the easy definition is unmerited favor. In other words, it's not because of something that we do that we receive grace. If it was, it wouldn't be grace. So we could say that God's grace is his good pleasure to give us and bestow upon us a benefit that is undeserving. In other words, we don't deserve the things that God does for us. Now, it's hard to distinguish, in all honesty, between grace and mercy that I talked about last week with mercy. And I don't know that to God there really is a difference. Maybe grace and mercy are very close to the same thing for Him and who He is, but for us there is a bit of a distinguishing mark. So we can say that it's mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt. Right? To be merciful on someone is to help them, to give them something when they're hurting. It can be as simple as giving someone an encouraging word or a hug or giving them some type of physical help when they need it. It can be mercy. But grace is God's goodness directed toward a debt, something that we owe, some type of demerit, something we've done that is wrong. And so mercy is goodness confronting a need that we have. And grace, the way we're talking about it today, is the way that he relieves a debt that we have. And of course, we know that that debt is the sin that we have, the sin that easily entangles us, the sin that we're born into, the sin that is contrary to what God is and who God is. And yet God gives us grace. Grace where we don't deserve it. In fact, when we talk about salvation, and we talked about last week, and of course we can't escape today, when we talk about grace... We know that no one was ever saved by anything other than grace. And what that means is that while the sacrificial system that was set into place in the Old Testament that we see uh, uh, permanently fulfilled in the New Testament, there was still an element of grace that was needed for salvation. That nothing truly changed from the old to the new. It had always been the plan that Christ would come and His grace his blood shed for us would be the saving factor for who and what we are. And that was just as true at the foundation of the world as it is today. That Adam and Eve found grace. Noah found grace. The men and women who were saved in the Old Testament were saved by grace, looking forward to what Christ would do for us. Just as we are saved by grace, unmerited forgiveness based on our faith and what Christ has completed. And so grace has always been with us. John 1 and 17 says this, says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. But I just want to point out, this doesn't mean that there was no grace until Jesus appeared on earth, because Jesus, as a part of the Godhead, always was always is and always will be. So Christ is grace. A part of what Christ is, is grace. And Christ has existed from the beginning of time, which means that grace also existed. 
So it wasn't as though God had to invent this concept of unmerited favor to forgive us. And somehow through the course of history, he goes, oh, wait a second. I have to be gracious to those. I have to invent or create Christ who can be grace. No, grace and Christ are the same thing. And they have been from the very beginning. And so it wasn't like there was suddenly this problem that God had to figure out how to solve. He knew from the beginning because he is grace. Grace is part of who he is. And so he made a way for us to escape through his grace what otherwise would be a death sentence. Romans 5 and 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I've already mentioned this verse over the last few weeks, once or twice. How much more is much more? A lot more. (laughs) These are terms that we can't hardly define, which is why God is incomprehensible that we talked about a few weeks ago. And so what we see is that the law teaches us what we ought to do and shows us that we are guilty before an almighty God. And what happens is grace comes in to forgive us of that debt through Jesus Christ. And how much does it forgive us? Much more. And so all the sin that we think is going on, all the wrong and the hurt and the evil things that are going on, grace comes in and abounds much more. And so we have amazing, wonderful grace. We sing songs about it. We write hymns. We think about it all the time about his grace, his unmerited favor toward us that we can receive if we do but know him. Why? Because he is faithful, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And so we should give thanks. We should recognize God's grace. We should talk about his grace. We should understand what it means. We should share it with other people that there is Guilt, yes, by the law, because we are wrong, because we are sinful. But there is grace, unmerited favor that God has given us. He provided his only son so that we could escape and have a relationship with him once more. And so we are thankful for his grace. We are thankful for his mercy. We are thankful for his truth and his justice. We are thankful for everything that God is as we learn more about who and what God is and what he has revealed to us. Now, I want to spend a little bit longer today talking about one more attribute of God. And we're almost finished. Not that we're really finished. So I said, there are attributes and things that are true about God that we don't even know about. And there's not a single list of, well, there's 14 of these or anything like that. But what I'm saying is I'm coming down to a point where I think I've tested your patience and will send you off to consider the attributes, to consider who and what God is. I mean, I have something in mind for next week and the week after. So let us continue our proper view of God and talk about God's love. And to do that, I want to start with 1 John. I'll be here for a bit, so if you'd like to turn there. 1 John chapter 4. And what's a very familiar passage to us? 
1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And it reads as follows. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's abi- God abides in us and by, I'm sorry, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And when and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, whosoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Many of us have heard this before multiple times, either the whole passage or sections throughout our lives. We talk about God is love. Now, I've already mentioned that God is several things. God is wisdom. He's goodness. He's faithful. He's just. He's mercy. He's grace. And we say that God is love. And in fact, it says in the scriptures, at least twice in this passage, God is love. And while we say that God is these things, let us not be confused with understanding when we say that God is these things, we're not really defining what these things are. We're not saying that God is love in the definitional sense. We're saying that everything that is love, God also is. Love is is something that is true of God, that God expresses, that God exudes, that is true about Him. It expresses the way that He cares about us, His faithfulness, His truth, His grace. And because we know these other things about God, love actually means so much more. So consider this for a minute. God, we said, is self Existence. He exists in and of himself. And that means that since God is love and God has perfect love because he is love, that love has no beginning. 
We know that God is eternal. So his love for us lasts forever. It has no end. And so when we think about how God loves us and we think about that in relationship to what we've learned about him, we can grow even more confident because we as mere people can love someone and then stop loving them, can't we? See, but God doesn't do that because his love is eternal. Because his love is not based on my behavior. It is based on who he is because he is self-existent. God is infinite. Therefore, his love has no limits. His love has no limits. It doesn't matter how bad you have been in your life. God still loves you and wants you to follow after him. You cannot be such a bad person that God would not love you. It is infinite. God is faithful, as we talked about a few weeks ago. So his love is constant and consistent. And so when we think about all these things that God is, all these attributes about him, and we think about how that all works together in a unitary functioning, if God is love and God is also these other things, then these other attributes are then applied to love. He is always loving in all cases, at all times. It is who and what God is. Let me pause there for just a second and ask a hard question. What is love? I just got done saying that God is love. And so, again, I want to kind of uh, divorce these two concepts. I'm not saying that God is love as in that's the definition. We are saying when we say, and the scriptures say God is love, we are saying that's part of what God is. So, what is love? How do you define love? How do you measure love? And nobody answered. I don't think we can, or can we? We can talk about the things that help us to know what love is, but love isn't something that we can necessarily measure, taste, touch, feel. And we are a people who somehow think the only thing that exists are things that we can touch, taste, feel, measure, etc. And yet, we'd have to admit that there is this thing called love. We've all experienced it at different points and in different ways and in different times, sometimes for short periods, sometimes for longer periods. And although I can't measure it or touch it or explain it necessarily very well, we somehow know that there is this thing called love. And so although I can't adequately define it or describe it or tell you where it's at or tell you how to get it. What we all know is the effects of love, don't we? We can feel and understand what love is. And so in an effort to understand a little bit better about God and his love, let us just talk briefly about a few ways that we can know what love is. Love shows itself as a good will towards something else. Love is a good will toward something else. In other words, love never wants to harm or do evil. Love never wants to do harm or to do evil. This is very important for us to think about, and this is part of what this passage in 1 John 4 is explaining, right? That we would never say that we love each other and then hate someone who we say that we love. These two things are incompatible. Why? Because love wants the best 
of whatever it is that it's applied toward. 1 John 4 and 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We also know that there is no fear in love. I'm sorry, I said verse 18, I read the wrong one. Let me read 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That was the one I was looking for. There is no fear in love. Why? Because love desires the best towards someone else. And fear persists when we're not sure whether that person has our best interests at heart. Now, when we talk about this on a personal level, I'm not saying we can't make a mistake, but the point is the intention. When we choose to love someone else, our intention is to do the best for them. We may mistaken in that. We may choose the wrong thing. We may love in a way that the other person doesn't like very much. But the intention of love is always to do the best toward someone else. And so when we think about God, that's exactly the circumstances we're in, except God is perfect. God's intentions are always right, are always truth, are always just, are always merciful, are always righteous. And he will accomplish those goals in us. And so we have nothing to fear from God when we are one of his, because his love for us is to do good toward us. So let's think back to when we were children. Some of us, that was not too long ago. Others, it was a very long time. Do you ever get lost in a crowd? Can you, can you remember that feeling when all of a sudden you look around and realize you don't know where a parent is or someone who's taking care of you. I have a very, very distinct memory of this. In fact, I even remember where I was at. We were in line for something. I don't remember what, but I remember where it was at. And I walked over, let's tell you how little I was, and I put my arm around my daddy's leg, right, because I was a little short guy. And I looked up, and it was not my dad. And the very nice man looked down and just smiled as nice as he possibly could. But I was scared because I didn't know who it was. And I looked around and I did not immediately see any of my family. They had moved up a few steps in line and I was still behind. Right? I was actually terrified. I don't know how old I was, but I remember this. But I also remember... That with, uh, seemed like a long time, but probably a second at the most, I look over and see my father and I instantly feel what? Complete comfort and complete safety. Why? Because my dad was there. Anybody ever experienced this? You think about things like this or you've had kids where you've had this problem? This is the type of love and comfort that we're talking about. That when you just know that you're with someone who loves you and cares about you and will do anything for you and has goodwill and good feeling towards you. We seek that as human beings because we need it from other people. We need to love each other as the scripture says. And that is the comfort 
and the safety of knowing that the one that we love and the one that loves us wants good things for us. And that is how we should be with God because that is how God loves us. He desires to do good things for us. And as comfortable as it is for a child to be in the arms or in the presence of one who loves them unconditionally, we can feel that comfort and that safety in the presence of God who loves us unconditionally. And where is the presence of God? Everywhere. Do we see how these things come together to help us understand how our Father loves us and who He is? God's love disposes Him, if you will, to desire our everlasting welfare. He wants to give us good things. The Scriptures say as much. And because He is all-powerful, He can and will fulfill these promises. Maybe not always in the way that we want immediately. Do we always give children what they want? No, because sometimes as parents, we know what? Better. Sometimes God knows better too. But we must remember that God's love for us is that we will have and do good things. It is good toward us and we can live our lives understanding us, not fearful. Not Fearful. Now, just real quickly, I'll pause and say, you can have the right fear, which is the respect and honor to God, but not the fearful as in something from him. That is, in fact, if you know him and he knows you. The other thing we know about love is that love is an emotional identification. Love is emotions. Love is not purely emotions. Stop that train right there. Just because I don't feel like I love somebody, does that change it sometimes? No. We cannot, never should, ever will, at our level, base love solely on feelings. However, to say that there are no feelings in love doesn't work either. Love is a feeling. There are emotions attached to love. Love considers nothing but to give freely to the object of its affection. That's a quote and what that means. Let me, let me rephrase that. When we truly love something, what do we do? We spend time taking care of it. We think about it. We, if it's another person, we talk to them. We do things for those who we love. We are self-sacrificing. We give to those that we love. Scripture tells us greater love has no one than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You've heard that before, right? Do you know the verse that follows that? You are my friends if you do what I command you. I'll confess I missed that for years, probably forever, until I started preparing for this. I've heard all my life, lay down your life for your friends. Many men and women who I know have that tattooed. On themselves. Why? Because that's what they have devoted their life to do, to lay it down if necessary in service of mankind. But you know what? I'd always miss that next part. Greater love has no one than this. Someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Who said that? Jesus Christ. 
Do we see him already telling us before he went to the cross what he would do for us that the emotional amount of love that he has, he is willing to give his life for us. And he did give his life for you. Every single one of you. So why would a self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, all-powerful, immutable God love us? I can't hardly understand it. There is absolutely nothing, when you compare me to God, worth loving me over. There isn't. And it's not because I love Him properly. 1 John 4.10 says... We have not loved God, but he loved us first. He loved me first. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Right? It wouldn't be grace. He chose to love me, to love me emotionally, to set inside of me the mystery of who he is, to make creation for me to enjoy and to point back to him. All of this is for my benefit and for his glory and for his power. And he loved me first when there was no reason to do that. God chose to set inside of us an emotional attachment between us and him. And it was his choice to initiate and his choice to continue. And we know that he will continue it. The other thing about love, love takes pleasure in its object or in its person. When we say that we love someone, we take pleasure in them. When we say we love something, we take pleasure in whatever that is. So we can say that God takes pleasure in us. Again, can you hardly even imagine that? Psalms 149 and 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Luke 12 and 32 says, Fear not, O little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God desires to be active in our lives because he loves us. He wants to give us things because He loves us. He wants to spend time with us because he loves us. He wants to do things for us because he loves us. Zephaniah 3 and 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He rejoices over us with gladness. Why? Because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he's good. Why does he love us? Because he has mercy for us. Because he gives us his grace. Because he forgives us, cancels our debt, sets us right before him and says, I want to know you personally. I want to be engaged with you. I want to love you and for you to love me back. And when he does that, he rejoices over us in gladness. When we have turmoil and things going on in our life, it says he will quiet us by his love. How about this? He will exalt over you with loud singing. God sings about us. 
What's common among a lot of songs? Love. Maybe there's more to that than we think there is. You ever thought about God singing about you? Singing a love song because of you? (laughs) Another thing about love, I guess I'm going to say it's a double negative. Love is not inactive. In other words, love is active. What do I mean by that? If I was to say that I love someone but never talk to them, never do something for them, never think about them, never engage with them in any type of dialogue or anything, you'd say, "Mm, not so much. And so when we talk about God's love and God's love for us, we know that he is active. He is here. He is in all places at all times. He is all powerful. He is engaged and active in our very lives. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows us his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't just leave us here without hope. He provided the grace. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, God is active in this world. He is engaged. He is loving us by sending his son. One last thing I want us to consider today. God is personal. Love is personal. Love is a personal and intimate thing. God doesn't love populations. He loves people individually. Think about that for a minute. He doesn't just love groups of people. He loves us individually as individual souls, as individual people, as the ones who he created, the ones who he knows the very number of hair you have on your head. He loves us and interacts with us. We are the object of his affection. There's an emotional identification there. And God shows his love to us. So he doesn't just love white people or black people. He doesn't just love men or women, rich or poor. He doesn't just love Republicans or Democrats. He doesn't just love those who live in this country and not those who live in others or love one group more than another. He loves us individually. Let me pause here and explain why this is important. Because this is the very foundation, among other things, of what the world is attacking today. Identity politics. Identity disability. Identity racial groups. The world is telling us and is teaching our children that the only way to think about everyone is to put them in these little boxes. And if you're this, then you have to have this opinion to think this way because this is the group that you belong to. No. God doesn't love groups. He loves us individually. So it doesn't matter whether you have this type of disability or this type of ethnicity or speak this language or are a part of this group. All that matters is that God loves you individually for who you are and wants you to love him back and act as though he cares about you, to follow his commandments. And the world is teaching over and over and over again 
on a crash course that all we can do is fit in these little tiny boxes. Well, if you're this, you have to think this way because you're this. No. We are individuals made in the image of God, and he loves us as individuals. Now, I could stand here today and say that I love you as a body of people, but I only love you because I love you individually. See, there's a difference. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone, singular person, is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you individually have been saved through faith, and this is not of your individually own doing. It is the gift of God. God didn't come down and just save a massive group of people whether they wanted to or not. We're individuals. We can think about the time that he washed the disciples' feet. Christ got down on his hands and knees after the supper, and he went around to every disciple, and he washed their feet. Now, why do I point that out? Because Christ being God could have accomplished that in any way he wanted to. He could have stood back and called for angels to come and wash the disciples' feet, but he didn't. He did it personally. He could have, in his infinite power, somehow washed all their feet at once. But he didn't. He did it individually. Can you imagine? Maybe by this point, some of them begin to realize just in fact who he is. And here comes this man, the very son of God, coming one by one by one to wash your feet. Can you imagine the emotions that you would feel as you're waiting for your turn? God loves us as individuals. He knows us. He made us. And he wants us individually to love him back. Let's consider God's love for just a moment. God's goodwill, his emotion toward us, his pleasure toward us, how he's active in our lives, how he's personal. And remember, this is the God who's incomprehensible, the God who's all-powerful, the God who's all-knowing, the God who is in all places, the God who is self-existent, the God who is eternal, the God who is wisdom and good and faithful and just and mercy and grace and so on and so forth. And he loves me individually. And he loves you too. I want to close with this. Luke 15. Verse 3, Luke 15, verse 3. Christ tells a parable here. He says, So we told them the parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the ninety and nine righteous persons who need no repentance. If you ever needed proof that God loves us individually, here it is. God wants to come and get you when you are lost. And when he comes, he doesn't scold you. He doesn't beat you. He doesn't give you a dressing down, although you deserve all those things. No, he puts you on his shoulders and he rejoices that the sheep that was lost is now found, is now his again. This is a story and a picture of salvation. He goes after us. He came to die for you. And when you repent, notice you don't have to find your way back to God. You just have to realize you're lost and to give in and let him put you on his shoulders, him to rejoice over you. As we talked about before, he'll sing a song over you to take you home and to rejoice and throw a party and say, this who was lost is now found. That is love unending. That is love that is personal. That is love that is sacrificing. That is love that is action. That is love that is an image of who and what God is. Some of us today have experienced this. Some of us at some point in our lives have looked around and realized that you're lost. Remember that story I told you when I looked up and realized that my family wasn't around. That moment of sheer terror and panic when you realize you're in the wrong place and you don't know anyone. You don't know if those who love you are there. Brothers and sisters, if you today are realizing that you are lost, that when you look up, that God is not around, that you have wandered off on your own, that you do not know him and the free pardon of sin, then what you do today, when you realize that is in repentance, that means asking for forgiveness, you call out to him to come and to get you, to put you on his shoulders and to do all the hard work of taking you back to his house where he loves you. It is grace that that is done by. It is not through any effort of your own. You will not be able to find your way back on your own. It is only by his grace, his love, and his mercy that he comes through the wilderness to find you, to pick you up when you cannot do it on your own. But you have to identify that you're there. God has to work in your life to realize that you are lost and need to be saved. You can keep running from him, but he keeps coming for you. Stop running. Stop putting off the grace and the love and the mercy that he literally died to give you and simply give up. Let him rejoice over you. I have found my sheep that was lost.